Our um, passage this morning is John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's let's go to prayer. Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for providing for us your word to tell us how we should live and how we should know you. We ask, Father, that you will be with Thomas. He brings the word to us. We ask, Father, that you will open our hearts to, to understand and to obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I want you to imagine for a moment a huge, beautiful vineyard that covers thousands of acres. It's perfectly maintained by its vine dresser. But instead of having lots of primary vines that are rooted in the soil, there's just one vine. This vineyard has this one master branch. That's what a vine is. It's the master branch from which all the other branches come. And that one single branch has been miraculously enabled to provide sustenance to an entire vineyard, a huge, huge vineyard. It just keeps spreading and new branches come out of it. And it produces beautiful grapes. And these grapes, unlike in a typical vineyard, they stay attached to the branches. 
They don't rot, they don't fall off, and they aren't yet harvested. They just stay attached as the vine continues to spread and more branches are formed and more and more beautiful, wonderful fruit is produced. That's the word picture that Jesus sets before us in this passage. This enormous vineyard has lots of sticky fruit. And when I say sticky fruit, I don't mean it's sticky on the outside where it sticks to your hand. I mean it sticks to the branch. It never lets go. It, it, it remains. Or to use the word John uses, it abides. Now, if you've been with us for the last few passages that we've examined in John's Gospel, you know that everything recorded in chapters 13 through 17 happened in just one evening. The evening that began with Jesus and his disciples gathered in an upstairs room in Jerusalem. In the last verse of the last chapter, chapter 14, Jesus said to his 11 true disciples, Arise, let us go from here. So they left that upstairs room and they began to walk. And they were walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus knew he would be short, very shortly arrested. He had promised, he had just promised these 11 men that he would not leave them as orphans. He would leave, he would go and depart to, go, to be with his father, but he said he would not leave them as orphans. He and his father would send the Holy Spirit to abide not just with them, but in them. He would pitch his tent in them and he would stay there, he would remain. He would teach and empower them and give them His peace, unlike the world's peace. He would be their advocate and their enabler as they continued to do Christ's work on earth, seeking and saving the lost. Now in chapter 15, as he's walking with his beloved disciples to the garden, knowing that his own suffering and death would be accomplished before twilight the very next day, Jesus presents to them an amazing allegory a very vivid word picture about a vineyard. In the first few verses, Jesus reveals the identity of each of the three parties to to God's work of fruit production. The vine is Jesus, and when he says that he is the true vine, that is the seventh of the seven missional I am statements of Jesus that are found in this gospel that tell us not just who he is, but what he came to do. The vine is Jesus. The vine dresser, he says, is his father. And the branches are his disciples. But he doesn't specifically identify what is symbolized by the fruit in this, this metaphor, this allegory. And I think there's a reason for that. I think that's because he's talking about more than just one kind of fruit. More than just one thing. I think he's talking about all of the fruit that God produces in and through each of his beloved children, and in and through the whole community of his beloved children, the church. That means the fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of God lived out in every believer. And it is also the fruit of many souls plucked out of the darkness and planted firmly in the kingdom of God's 
own beloved son. People from every tribe and tongue and nation whom God would add to his vineyard starting with these 11 branches. Jesus lays out three sets of tasks in this passage. One for each of the three workers in this, the three parties to fruit production in the passage. The vine dresser, he tells us what the vine dresser does, he tells us what the vine does, and then he tells us what the branches do to ensure that God's vineyard spreads and produces a lot of sticky fruit. First, what the vine dresser does. He begins verse 2 with the words, every branch in me. And then he speaks of two different categories of branches under that one heading. He tells us what the vine dresser does with those two categories. The phrase, in me, that's introduced in the first half of verse 2 is assumed in the second half. So if you put what's assumed in it, what you get is this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, the gardener, takes away. And every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. So who are the unfruitful branches in the first part of verse 2? And what is Jesus saying that his father, the vine dresser, does with those unfruitful branches? I'll tell you right up front that my answers to those questions are different than those of most preachers and authors that I've re- that I've read and heard. But I didn't arrive at, th- at my answer uh, carelessly or lightly. My desire is simply to be true to what I see in God's Word. That doesn't mean I'm right, of course. Your your task every Sunday is to take what you hear from me and test it with the Word of God, and if it doesn't match up, throw it out. I spent a lot of time looking at Jesus' use of the phrase, in me, in John's Gospel, and the use of that same phrase by John, in Christ, or in Him, that as John uses it in his epistles. And I do not see any way that it can apply to unregenerate men. I just don't. Some would say I'm superimposing Paul's use of that phrase in me on John, but my intent is to respect Jesus' use of that phrase recorded in John. In the preceding chapter of this gospel, which is part of the same farewell discourse of Jesus to his disciples, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you shall live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You in me, and I in you. And if you read Jesus' words in chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer to his Father, you will have to see how foundational and how powerful those words were in the mind of Jesus. You in me. And I in you. The reality of Christ in us and us in Him is no less organic. It is no less foundational to the identity of every redeemed child of God in John's Gospel than it is in Paul's epistles. But how can branches that are in Christ be removed or taken away? Surely they can't. 
There are plenty of passages that, are, that, that tell us that when Christ makes us His own, there's no way anyone can take us away from Him. So how does this play out? Well, I believe that the translation taken away that's in all of the mainstream translations in verse 2 is based on the assumption that verse 6 is talking about the same people that verse 2 is. And I don't believe it is. So stick with me and I'll try to explain how I came to that. I'm going to actually, I'm going to let James Montgomery Boyce uh, make the case on verse 2 for me because I, I love his wording here. But I'll tell you, I came to these exact same conclusions about verse 2 of John 15 through my own study of the passage and the wording in the passage and the context of the passage before I saw that James Boyce was saying the same thing before I came across his commentary on this. Boyce believes, that I, as I do, that the phrase takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, that that does not translate the original wording here in a manner that fits the context. In fact, it's not even the essential meaning of the word that's being translated. Referring to many translations that render the verse that way, Boyce says, and I quote, undoubtedly their translation has been made to conform to what they know or believe is coming in verse 6. But the translation is not the best or even the most general meaning of the Greek word iro, which lies behind it. The word iro has four basic meanings, which are, proceeding from the most fundamental to the most figurative, to lift up or pick up. Second, to lift up figuratively, as in lifting up one's eyes or voice. Third, to lift up with the added thought of lifting up in order to to carry away, and fourth, to remove. In translating, I'm still reading Boyce, in translating this word by the verb take away, the majority of translators have obviously chosen the fourth of these meanings, to remove. But the verse makes better sense, and the sequence of verbs is better if the first and primary meaning of the word is taken. In that case, the sentence would read, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he lifteth up. That is to keep it from trailing on the ground. Boyce says this lifting up is precisely what is first done with vines, as anyone who has watched them being cared for knows. Grapes are not like squash or pumpkins that develop quite well while lying on the ground. They must hang free. Consequently, Any branch that trails on the ground is unproductive. It would be a strange vine dresser, he says, who immediately cuts off such a branch without even giving it a chance to develop properly. But it would be wise and customary for him to stretch the vine on an arbor or use some other means of raising it to the air and the sun. This is, of course, precisely what vineyards look like. For the vines are always strung from pole to pole with wires. End quote. Boyce then goes on to explain that this translation lifts up, aligns with the sequence of what a good vine dresser actually does. He doesn't prune a branch that has fallen to the ground as he would the other branches. He first lifts it up 
and secures the fallen branch above the ground and then he cleans it up and skillfully prunes it to ensure that it will produce plenty of fruit. I believe both of the branches described in verse 2 represent regenerate men and women. Those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith in him. Some of those branches are already fruitful, some are not. But if they are in the vine, if they are in the vine, our faithful vine dresser will faithfully nurture them in order to produce much fruit through them. And I find that greatly encouraging because I tend to fall down in the dirt every now and then. On the other side of this, I believe that those whom Jesus describes in verse 6 do not belong to him and are not regenerate. And honestly, I don't understand why so many who look at this passage feel like they have to make verse 6 talk about the same people as verse 2. Because verse 6 actually doesn't even say it's talking about figurative branches. It says anyone... And it doesn't say anyone who doesn't bear fruit. It says anyone who does not abide in Jesus is as a branch. Now we're going from metaphor to simile. Is like a branch, right? Who is thrown away and and gathered up and cast into the fire to be burned. There's a lot of differences between verse 2 and verse 6. I believe those whom Jesus describes in verse 6 do not belong to him and are not regenerate. They are pretenders. They have a superficial attachment to Christ, but they're not in him and he is not in them. They're like unsuccessful grafts that never took. The vine dresser casts them aside to be gathered up and thrown in the fire to be burned. And I don't believe that language can apply to the regenerate, to the children of God. The 11 men who were hearing these words from Jesus on this momentous night were no more than a few hours away from being face to face with a vivid example of just such a pretender. One who had been in their inner circle for the last three years. He was going to show up in the garden and he was going to betray their master. He made a good show of being attached to the vine for quite a long time. But he never was. He was a branch destined for the consuming fire of God's eternal judgment. Just as John does with his readers here, the Apostle John in 1 John talks about those who walk away. They are not of us and they demonstrate they are not of us because they Go away from us. Jesus knows that these 11 men don't fit the category of John 15, verse 6. He's the one who chose them. He's the one, he says in a little while, who appointed them to produce much fruit. He said to them, I will not leave you as orphans because you're mine. In verse 3, he says to the 11 disciples, you are already clean. Same word as pruned in verse 2 because of the word which I have spoken to you. And that matches up with what he said to the 12 disciples in chapter 13 just before he sent Judas on his way to accomplish his betrayal. He said to him, he who has bathed, he said to Peter, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean and you are clean but not all of you. In John 
clarifies, he says, he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. But the 11 men who were still with Jesus here in chapter 15 were the real deal. Entirely by God's choosing. They were his branches. Branches in Christ. Whenever they found themselves fallen into the dirt, their vine dresser had faithfully lifted them up and cleaned them off over and over. They would fall very badly that same night but he would lift them up to become fruitful branches. And the very efficient and effective pruner's knife or pruner's tool that his father had been using all along to faithfully clip away at whatever got in the way of fruit production through these 11 branches was the word that Jesus had spoken to them. Most vine dressers use pruning shears. Ours uses a sword. The sharpest sword that ever was. He's really good with it. The living and active Word of God is our pruner's tool. The faithful vine dresser had already been producing fruit through these 11 men. He was going to produce a whole lot more. He said, greater things will you do than I did when I was here. See, that's what our vine dresser does. He makes his branches fruitful. What about those who are not his branches? Those who are cast aside, thrown into the fire to be burned? What about those branches that come in as a threat to his vineyard? As pretenders that have no real connection to the vine? Do all of them end up in the unquenchable fire of hell? Well, I, I would assume that most do. But maybe we shouldn't be too quick to assume that all of those, that all of those who are pretenders will end up in hell. And here's why. Zechariah 3 refers to faithless, unclean Jerusalem as a brand plucked from the fire. What fire? The same one Jesus is talking about. The fire of God's wrath, of God's judgment. He's a brand plucked from the fire. Saved from the wrath of God that they fully deserve, just like you and I were. See, through us, through His own beloved branches who have ourselves been plucked from the fire, our, our perfect vine is mighty to save even the very worst to the very uttermost. There are some who are militantly against Jesus Christ and you've had conversations with some of them. And there are some who pretend to believe in Christ and do not. And God's not finished with them yet. And it may be you that He uses to pluck them out of that fire. Our vine dresser makes his branches fruitful. What does the vine do? The vine, Jesus says, he is the true vine. This word picture in which Jesus presents himself, the Son of Man and Son of God as God's fruitful vine, is not new to this passage. 
I believe Jesus is actually revisiting and explaining the same powerful connection that God presented hundreds of years earlier through a priest named Asaph. And I, I was pleased to see this exact same connection in Bob's excellent commentary on John and in D.A. Carson's commentary on John. In Psalm chapter 80, verses 7 and 8, Asaph, the psalmist, is speaking of Israel as God's vine. And there are many passages that speak of Israel in the Old Testament as God's vine, which he delivered out of Egypt. Asaph calls out to God and he says, O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and you planted it. But at the end of that same psalm, this image of God's vine kind of changes. And it goes from talking about the nation to talking about a man. Listen to these verses. Psalm 80, verse 14. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine that is the shoot which your right hand has planted and on the Son whom you have strengthened for yourself. The Son whom you have strengthened for yourself. That's what we were talking about in the worship this morning. Then in verse 16, talking once again, I believe, about the failed vine, faithless Israel, Asaph says, it is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. But that judgment of God isn't the end of the story. In the, in the next verse, the psalmist returns again to his prayer for the true vine, the fruitful vine. And he says to God, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we, your people, shall not turn back from you. When you make him strong for yourself, we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Yahweh, God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. In both Testaments, The true vine that actually produces fruit for God is His Son, Jesus. Isn't that cool? (laughs) And and the Old Testament calls that same true vine the branch. Which, that's fine because a vine is the master branch. Zechariah 6, God speaks of a man whose name is Branch, who will, quote, branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Does that sound like a a spreading vineyard might be a good comparative image for this? He will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, a priest on his throne. Priest and king in one person. The branch who spreads the temple of God over the whole earth. Read Revelation 7 sometime. It talks about about Jesus spreading his tabernacle over men. Saved men. What's the tabernacle? What's the temple? It's the dwelling place of God. The branch will spread the dwelling place of God over the world. He will take the veil of death that has covered all the nations, Isaiah 25, and He will replace it with the presence of God living in His people. 
He's going to spread the temple all over the world. That's our vine. He will create a people who will not turn back from Him, but who will pitch their tent in Him and remain in Him forever because He has pitched His tent in them. That's what the word abide means. It means pitch your tent and stay. Here in John 15, Jesus tells us this true vine chooses and appoints His branches. Verse 16, You did not choose Me. I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. It is by His doing that we are in Him. And it is by His doing that we are made useful to the vine dresser and produce much sticky fruit. The second thing the vine does with respect to his branches is he speaks the word to them by which they are cleansed, by which they are pruned. He said, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. But there's no coincidence that that verse comes just before verse 4. You are already cleansed because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Just a few verses later, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. The word of Christ and the word concerning Christ, which is the whole of the Scriptures, is the sharp sword by which the good vine dresser cleans away all that does not serve his goal of producing lots of good fruit. Finally, the vine abides in his branches. He he calls us to abide in him, but he abides in us. He pours out his own life into his branches, feeding and nourishing them so that they produce much fruit and they branch out into more and more branches that produce much fruit. He promised He would not leave us as orphans. He promised He would come and dwell in us in the person of the Holy Spirit who is also called the Spirit of Christ. He never breaks away from us. He's right here with us and every moment until He returns to usher us into the place that He has prepared for us to dwell with His Father. Every moment, He's right here with us. The vine abides in his branches. And what do the branches do? This is where we come to Christ's assignment for us in this passage. He gives us a promise here that's tied to a command. His promise that's distilled in verse 16 is, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask of my Father in my name, He may give it to you. See, that's not the exhortation in this passage. That's the promise. He chose us and He appointed us to bear fruit. So we're going to bear fruit. Fruit that remains attached to the branches, which in turn remain attached to the vine. That's the promise. Here's the command that's bound up with that promise in verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Get the roles sorted out. (laughs) 
I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you go whack a branch off of the tree in your backyard, how long does it keep producing fruit? Not very long. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is telling his disciples, and that means us who belong to him, that we need to get the roles straight. God has eternally valuable things to do through us, things he will do through us. He's a really good vine dresser. But we need to understand that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. A branch doesn't produce fruit by resolving to produce fruit. It doesn't produce fruit by striving to produce fruit. You know how many Christians' lives are burdensome because their lives are all about them producing fruit? No, a a branch produces fruit by abiding in the vine. That's the only way. That's the assignment. That's our foremost assignment, to abide in the vine. See, we don't have to worry about what the vine is supposed to do or what the vine dresser is supposed to do. They're really good at their stuff. We who belong to Jesus through faith have our Lord's promise that He, that he faithfully abides in us. He has pitched His tent in us. Our task is to abide in Him and stay put. What does that mean? See, the picture of a branch remaining firmly attached to the vine is great. It's a nice metaphor, but what does it look like in real life? How do we know we're really doing it? Well, fortunately, Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. He spells it right out for us. Here's how we branches abide in the vine. First, by receiving his word. He said, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. He already told his disciples that they were clean because of the word he had spoken to them. But that pruning that produces lots of fruit is an ongoing work of God. And again, the pruner's tool is, is the sword. It's the word of God. As his word comes to richly dwell within us, the author of that living and active word who lives within us makes us fruitful. He has his way with us. He conforms us to Christ. So the first part of our abiding is that we receive his word. We let his word richly dwell within us. The second part is that we abide in his love. Now this is an amazing thing in this passage. Verses 9 and 10, Jesus tells his disciples something they probably weren't expecting. Maybe something that we're not expecting. He says, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, abiding in him means abiding in his love. And he says, and the way we abide in his love is by keeping his commandments. (laughs) How does that work? Isn't that putting the cart before the horse? Didn't, didn't John and his epistle say we love because he first loved us? Now Jesus is saying, 
keep my commandments and that, that's how you'll abide in my love. Seems backwards, doesn't it? I've been thinking about this a whole lot in the last couple of weeks. And what I want to share with you, I, I think is just amazing. It's not anything new. But, but I think, see, I think we're way too linear in our thinking when God is very dynamic. A lot of things work in two directions. A lot of things that He does. And that's what's happening here. Pitching our tent in Jesus and staying there is all about loving others as He has loved us. And loving others as He has loved us is all about pitching our tent in Him and staying there. Why does Jesus keep saying to His disciples, keep my commandments, plural, but then every single time He gets specific in this discourse, He's talking about one commandment. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 17, this I command you that you love one another. Back in chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. Over and over in this last time that he had with his disciples before his death, he zeroes in on one commandment. And that's the commandment for them to love one another as He has loved them. Why is that? I think it's simple. I think it's because this is what we do when Christ is abiding in us and we are abiding in Christ. Paul said in Romans 13.10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of law. We do Christ's will by loving others just as Christ did His Father's will by loving us. And it works in two directions. We abide in Christ. This is so beautiful. We abide in Christ by pitching our tent right in the thick middle of His love for us. And that happens not only as we bask in the promise and the reality of that love, but as we live that love out toward others. It's not one or the other, it's both. That's what abiding is. We who have been made the eternal objects of His astonishing love toward us, love that is signed, sealed, and forever proven at the cross, we are defined and controlled by that love. We live in that love. We live in that love. The love that plucked us out of slavery to sin and made us beloved friends of Jesus, as he says right here, forever. We pitch our tent in that love so pervasively that it affects everything that we say and everything that we do. Our whole purpose for being is wrapped up in that love. Every relationship in our lives is supervised and guided by his love for us. See, we know how to live because we know how we've been loved. And how is that? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did the next day. I don't know that these 11 men had much of a grasp of the magnitude of Christ's love for them this night, but they did the next day. They certainly did a few days later. 
after they had walked away from him. If you believe in Jesus Christ as the promised deliverer and king, the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who has taken away your sin and makes you stand blameless before your holy God forever, then you belong to Christ. You're his branch. And you already know what you need to know to abide in him and by his doing to be fruitful for him. See, we know how to abide in Him by thinking and praying and walking and working every day of our lives exclusively in the domain, in the place whose borders are defined by His love for us. We never push outside of those boundaries because that's where our life is. In His love, we know who we are and whose we are and why we are and what we're supposed to be doing. His incomparable love showered on us compels us irresistibly to love others on His behalf the way He's loved us and to love them right into His kingdom if He so wills. As we do, our own tent becomes ever more firmly staked in His amazing love for us. We abide in Him by pitching our tent in His love and staying there. Beloved, if you don't believe God loves you, you need to spend some serious time looking at what it took for Him to make you His own. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were helpless and sinners and enemies and lost and dead, Christ died for us to make us His. His eternal treasure. Finally, we abide in the vine by depending on the vine. And that means we pray. Verses 7 and 8, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Ask me, he says. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's the same promise he gave to them in the chapter before. In both passages, chapter 14, verses 12 to 15, and this one, it's a conditional promise, right? Here the condition is, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then the promise applies. Ask whatever you wish, and I'll do it. That my Father may be glorified in me, in the Son. See, if His words have taken up residence in us, if they richly dwell in us, if His own love toward us proven beyond all doubt at the cross has become our grid and our ground for all of life and godliness, if we are camped out in His incomparable love for us so that it defines and controls us, then whatever we ask of Him, He will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Because we're going to want the same things He does. We're going to be asking Him for the things that matter to Him. And you know what we won't be doing? Beloved, you know what we won't be doing? We won't be barraging Him with an endless string of requests for Him to back off on the pruning. Right? Isn't that what so much of our petitions end up being? 
We're saying, God, would you just chill a little bit? Would you lighten up with that sword? It hurts. See, instead, when we're dwelling in the love of Christ, we'll be asking God what the folks in Acts did. They asked him for boldness to proclaim Christ to the to these lost people who needed him desperately so they could be like, like the believers were. Brought into his astonishing light. Can you, can you just imagine for a moment what this body would be like? What your life would be like if that's what pervaded our requests of God? See, that's what abiding in Christ is like. That's what pitching our tent in Christ is like. Our desires become defined by His love. It's very, very powerful what Jesus is saying to His beloved disciples whom He loved to the uttermost in this passage. May that glorious goal fill your prayers and mine every day that God would make us fruitful branches because we love Him and we know how He has loved us. The outcome for His branch, for the branches the vine and the vine dresser is first proof to the world of the branch's identity as his beloved branches. Second, fullness of joy for us branches. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. One of the most astounding things to me in the parables is when Jesus, to the two faithful men in the parable of talents, he says, okay, enter into the joy of your master. How many bosses have you ever had who said that to you? Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be maxed out. Complete. Is there anybody here who doesn't want their joy bucket filled up to overflowing? That's what happens when we camp out in the love of Jesus Christ. And finally, the last outcome is a whole bunch of sticky fruit for the vine dresser and the vine. Are those outcomes good enough to motivate us to pitch our tent and stay in the love of Jesus Christ? Dear Father, we pray to You, our perfect vine dresser, make us really, really good and fruitful branches that bring You very much glory. We ask it in the name of your beloved, beautiful vine and ours, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.